Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and today we are going to be talking about whether the latest casualty on the battlefields of Syria will be the NATO alliance. The peg for this discussion is a renewed Turkish offensive, which is entered day three in Afrin, against the YPG, which is a Kurdish militia that has been backed by Washington DC to support the, well, in fact, to lead the campaign against ISIL um, in recent years. And to help us make sense of the latest events in Syria and what they mean for international politics, the future of Turkey-US relations, of NATO, and of Russia's growing power in the region. I am joined by Asla Aydin Tashbash, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who is currently in Istanbul. And here with me in London, I also have Kadri Leek, who is a senior policy fellow who works mainly on Russia, and our research director and World in 30 Minutes regular, Jeremy Shapiro. Thanks, Mark. So, Asla, why don't you start by telling us what's, what's going on and what the view from Ankara is? Hi, Mark. Um, let me start by saying that this didn't come as a surprise to anyone here in Turkey because Erdogan had been warning, Turkish president had been warning for some time, we can suddenly come in the middle of the night. That's a line from a Turkish song, and he'd been saying that the Afrin incursion, Afrin operation is imminent. Now, it's very curious in the sense that much of what's going on in Turkey, the incursion that started last Friday, is couched in a very strong nationalist and anti and even anti-American rhetoric. There's, there's, there's a lot of anger at uh, a NATO ally, United States, for siding with YPG, the Kurdish fighters uh, in uh, Syria, which happens to be the main U.S. ally on the ground, as you mentioned, but is also uh, seen as an offshoot of the PKK and therefore terrorists here in Turkey. But the curious thing is that Afrin has always been a Russian protectorate of some sorts. Uh, Americans never had troops there. And the, the, the city and, the, and its environs is the farthest tip of the Kurdish zone, but it's isolated from the rest. It's basically an island surrounded to, to the south by Idlib, where you have Turkish forces, and to the east by uh, a Turkey-backed zone, and to the north it's Turkey, to the west it's Turkey. So it's an island of some sort, and you had a few hundred Russian troops there. So Turkey had to go to Moscow and convince Vladimir Putin to be able to use air power, uh, Syrian airspace, and also to uh, essentially uh, start the incursion. What tipped off Turkey, essentially, after months of warning, was a U.S. announcement that Americans would help Kurdish fighters and other opposition groups that work with the Kurds to establish a border guard, border force, uh, to guard uh, Syria's borders in the north. So that this was a huge issue in Turkey and a big source of tension with Washington. But in the end, it was the red light, the green light from Moscow that allowed Turks to go in. 
So we're going to go to Moscow in the form of Kadri in a few minutes to find out why they gave the green light and, and how it's seen from there. But maybe before we do that, you can talk very briefly about what the, Kur- the Turkish military goals are. I think uh, this is not a huge area. As I said, it's adjacent to a Turkey-controlled zone. And I think Turkey wants to establish a 30-kilometer safe zone, what they call a secured zone, and link it up with the existing enclave they have. They're saying that there is 8,000 to 10,000 YPG uh, militants in there, and they want to root it out, and then the, the, the operation is called olive branch and Turkish government says this is not against says this is not against Kurds it's against YPG and PKK having said that uh, this is a densely populated area countryside is one thing but the city itself is home to about 400 to 500,000 people and uh, we are in the early beginning of a campaign no sense of how long it would take a few weeks maybe and no sense of what the russian Uh, sort of deadline is and all of that. But it's still in the countryside. The fighting is taking place between Turkey-backed Syrian opposition forces, Turkish government, air force, and uh, YPG units in the countryside. The whole thing, the whole uh, issue will be more, I think, in uh, in the international agenda when, if, and when the fighting starts to move towards the urban center, to the city itself to the city of Afrin. There's a very interesting exchange between America and um, uh, Turkey about that particular thing, because Rex Tillerson's been calling to limit the scope of the operation, and apparently Erdogan says, okay, I have a question for you, Washington. Is the length of your Afghanistan operation clear? When will that end? The Afrin operation will end when it reaches its goals. But let's hope it will cost less than a trillion dollars and uh, uh, last a bit less than the Afghan operation has done. I want to go to Jeremy to talk about that soon. But maybe before we can we do that, let's uh, look at it from, from a Russian perspective. Katri, what are you picking up when you talk to your Russian contact? Well, I, um, Moscow is strangely quiet uh, on, on that issue. There is no huge emotional reaction there. Um, and I think for Moscow, uh, it has been a hard decision to give Turkey that green light to go ahead. Because for Moscow, Kurds have been an important ally in their activities in, in Syria. But also they value the relationship with Ankara. Uh, and there was a big quarrel between uh, Erdogan and Putin a while ago after Turkey shot down a Russian fighter jet, but that's over and and Moscow definitely doesn't want to get back to it. So I haven't picked up any inside information about decision-making. I think that'll emerge later, but definitely this was a complicated decision uh, because Russia now basically owns the diplomatic process that they are trying to steer. And clearly that incursion makes it ever more complicated. They have planned that meeting in Sochi where the Syrian opposition already refuses to come and now uh, Kurds uh, are going to be complicated as, as well. At the same time though, Russia is always sensitive about separat- uh, separatism. And, and in that context, they understand Kurdish, uh, Turkish worries about Kurds, you know, 
Kurds are what Chechnya is for Moscow, and, and I, I can see the logic of, of thinking that. And how much is Russia motivated by a goal of splitting the West apart and creating problems between Washington and Turkey? I do not think so in, in, in this context. It is true that they are blaming Washington uh, for irresponsible behaviour in that context. Unilateralism is what yeah. we Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it could be that one of the motivation is to, to show to Washington that, you know, it's not only you who can behave obstructively, others can do the same thing. But uh, ultimately, I think in the Syrian context, Russia's goal is some sort of diplomatic settlement that uh, everyone, or at least most, uh, subscribe to. And that involves Turkey, as well as the US, as well as the intra-Syrian forces. Because what Russia, in my view, has wanted in Syria from the start is to set the precedent. You know, this is how you ought to resolve a crisis like this, not by supporting some sort of democratic rebels as being the Western habit, but by supporting the strongman or the legitimate power, as Russia says, and arranging a settlement around it. And for that reason, Russia wants that settlement to be accepted by others, because otherwise it wouldn't be sustainable and otherwise it wouldn't work as a precedent. So it's more of a principled stance than a tactical attempt to undermine the alliance? I would think so, yeah. So Jeremy, we've been talking many times over the last few years about um, ways that Syria is becoming a proxy war between great powers, but usually it's been between kind of um, the alliance and Russia and other players. Was this um, is a proxy war at the heart of NATO with Washington backing <laughs> the very troops that Turkey is trying to annihilate in this campaign? What does that mean for the future of NATO? Uh, I suppose not good things. I mean, I don't think this is exactly a new development. Uh, in fact, uh, the the main fault line uh, within within um, the U.S. operation in Syria has long been that the U.S. felt like in order to combat ISIS, it needed to use the only effective troops that it had on the ground that could fight ISIS. Uh, and certainly after 2014, the U.S. government became a sort of ISIS-seeking missile, and it was only interested in ISIS issues in Syria, and um, and the Kurds were the only the only force really that presented themselves as both effective and willing to fight ISIS, and they and they proved to be so in the ensuing three years, and they created a lot of connections uh, with particularly with the U.S. military and the U.S. special operations forces that were in Syria, and so there's a lot of support for the YPG within the Pentagon, and that uh, helps explain the the willingness to create this border force. But it has, since day one, been a source of enormous tension with Turkey. And uh, as Aza was saying, the, the U.S. relationship with Turkey has been going downhill for quite some time, uh, particularly over this issue, but not only over this issue. Uh, and I think it, are, it, it long since spilled over into NATO. It's become, uh, in, in the, when the Turks started this operation, they called on their NATO allies to help them in the uh, uh, along the lines of NATO solidarity, uh, but uh, I think most of most of the NATO allies, particularly led by the United States, don't believe that this is uh, an, uh, uh, an operation which is intrinsic to Turkey's security, and they're unwilling to really support it. The U.S. has called for them 
to, uh, to shorten the operation, to not do it, but it's had absolutely no effect. And I think that that, uh, that speaks to the state of, of U.S.-Turkish relations at this point. But there is also an obvious asymmetry here in that it is, you know, it's an important thing for American foreign policy, but American foreign policy, um, I guess, a long way from Washington, which this is central to Turkish politics, the Kurdish question. Absolutely. And I mean, you could, you could, the United States policy in Syria is wrapped around so many contradictions at this point that it's very, very difficult uh, to untangle. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, if you try to sort of get people in the United States interested in Afrin, they would ask you, why are you fighting over a nasal spray? Because in the United States, Afrin is a brand of nasal spray, and, and nobody has ever heard of Afrin, including people who, who uh, actually follow foreign policy, don't, have never heard of this enclave. Uh, so uh, there are no U.S. troops there. Uh, the United States has never been there. It's not important to the ISIS fight. Uh, the only link to the United States is that it is also that, that the, the forces that the United States supports in eastern Syria are also present in this enclave. And they're asking for the U.S. To and they're asking for them. U.S. help, but the U.S. has no options for helping them. Uh, it, is a, it is a zone which the Russians control the airspace in which the U.S. is not present and which, as you said, the Turks care a lot more about. So all they can do is sort of stand up and say, please don't do it and invoke anti-ISIS solidarity. But anti-ISIS solidarity, always weak, is, is completely fading away at this point as ISIS itself fades away. Yeah, ISIS is bad for anti-ISIS solidarity. You, it is, and the United States is in this sort of weird position where the only way it can justify, both as a legal and a political matter, its presence in Syria is to keep claiming that, that the ISIS fight is still happening and that the ISIS fight should be something that unites everyone. Uh, but the, the anti-ISIS fight is winding down uh, and is being replaced by the yet more complicated dynamics of the Syrian civil war. And that means, for example, that uh, the regime and the Russians are preparing an offensive against Idlib, just to the south of, of Afrin. Uh, and, th and that means that, the Russia, as Kadri said, the Russians are trying to create a peace proposal. And typically what happens at the end of Middle Eastern wars is that everybody turns against the Kurds. Uh, and that seems to be what's going on, what's going on here. Uh, it's very convenient for the Russians and the regimes to be able to shore up their Turkish flank uh, in order to have this operation, which will be a very, very difficult one, against Idlib in the current year. And, uh, and that means that the Kurds are the ones that have to suffer. And the United States, despite having announced that it wants to stay in Syria until the end of time, uh, is not, doesn't have sufficient forces or sufficient interest to do anything about it. I'd like to spend some time thinking about what happens in Syria, because we had lots of discussions about the prospects for peace in Syria and what the uh, different circumstances are, and the three of you, I'm sure, have a lot to say on that. But maybe before we do that, we could dwell a bit more on where Turkey's going, because, you know, it's been a big debate for many, many years now, since the Iraq war, there's been this kind of question mark about how Turkey relates that to the West, to NATO, um, and there have been ups and downs, mainly downs, in Ankara's relationship with Washington, with many of its EU allies over uh, different periods, and also with Russia. Kadri talked about some of the 
dramatic tensions that took place um, as a result of uh, Erdogan's decision to down a, a Russian fighter jet. Um, so, Asla, where do you see Turkey evolving? I mean, one thing is clear is that it's becoming a more independent actor, um, hence its ability to have very long and complicated relationships with lots of different players rather than just aligning with one pole. But what's, what's the feeling in Ankara at the moment? Well, uh, yes, and there's a, a lot of pride on the fact that Turkey can do this despite U.S. you know U.S. warnings, and that Turkey is now a big global player, much like Russia, etc. And coupled with that is is sort of a very amplified nationalist discourse that is now at the heart of Erdogan's regime. Uh, he here at home, the Afrin operation comes. Uh, a, immediately after the formation of a coalition, announcement of a sort of a election coalition with ultranationalist party, uh, right before the 2019 presidential elections. And it's almost the beginning of Erdogan's electoral campaign. But going back to the bigger strategic equation, uh, Turks very much value the relationship they have with Russians. Russians had been holding Turkey back in terms of moving forward on Afrin for months now. Each and every time Erdogan went over to see Putin, which is pretty often, I would, I would like to add, uh, Afrin came up and Russians never gave the green light. They finally did. But the tone used about Russia and Russians and Putin is very different from the very acerbic language used uh, about U.S. And, uh, and Washington in general. And so basically there is a very care, Turkey handles this relationship with Russia very carefully, uh, trying not to alienate Putin. I think that tells us something uh, Russians play their hand very well in the sense that in the final stretch of the Syrian war, this is a way to get Turkey to compromise in terms of Assad. It's a way to get Kurds to compromise in terms of the Syrian dealing with the Syrian regime, etc. But back at home, going back to your question, the e emergence of an independent Turkey with sort of strong, very strong nationalist fervor that reminds me of the 90s, but it's even more amplified, coupled with sort of a religiosity, a, a sort of a conservative government, just to add a little color to the story. For example, the government has instructed the Turkish mosques, 90,000 of them, to read the conquest verse from the Quran in the sort of Afrin offensive, uh, you know, Erdogan's language is whoever stands on our way in this national struggle will run them over, he says, and coupled with the sort of religiosity that's, and the sense of conquest, jihad, that's, 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 uh, uh, that's part of this Afrin of offensive. We certainly seem to be talking about the emergence of a new Turkey. Okay, and where does Europe fit into this? There was a, a few weeks ago, um, we saw a kind of thaw after a lot of um, freezing that took place. We saw um, the German foreign minister having tea. In fact, he bought a special Turkish teapot for the occasion in his house with the, the Turkish foreign minister. And this was kind of being written up as a, uh, a thawing of EU-Turkey relations um, is that real? Teapot diplomacy. Teapot diplomacy, yeah. I, do you think that's, uh, that's got a future? Or do you think it was a one-off, Jeremy? I, I think the thaw is real. 
and which is why Europeans have been relatively quiet and offering. Uh, Germans have urged, called Turkish counterparts and urged restraint. Uh, Germans have agreed to sell tanks, uh, panzer tanks, to uh, Turkey, which is something they've been withholding. Uh, and it's being used in the Afrin offensive, and it, 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 it's sort of a point of uh, conf- debate w- within Germany. Meanwhile, uh, the French, who have typically been sympathetic to the Kurdish cause and, uh, and, and have hosted YPG leaders uh, in in. In, in Paris on several occasions. Now, initially, yesterday, there was a French demand for a meeting of the Security Council in New York to also discuss, among other things, Afrin. And uh, Turkish, Turkey reacted very strongly. I believe Turkish uh, officials called French officials. And France sort of seems to have stepped back. So the thaw is there. Uh, no one wants to really... Uh, get back to where things were with Turkey last summer. I think everybody is treading gingerly on this whole top, uh, on this whole uh, issue. Half and I think Austria that... Chancellor, maybe. With, <laughs> there, maybe, maybe. But there is sort of this... Uh, this uh, I'd like to say there's sort of this carte blanche at the moment. As long as things wrap up in Afrin. If Turkey moves beyond that, and if there's heavy civilian casualties and whatnot, that would be a different story. But for now, Europeans seem to be like, we're okay with this. Okay. So should we maybe spend the last few minutes talking about Syria and and how this plays into the kind of wider hopes? Um, Yeah, sure. But I think maybe one thing to add to what Asli is saying is that the the Afrin operation is not for Turkey a, a... an easy thing to do or a done deal. In fact, uh, they have not been terribly effective in these types of operations in Syria in the past. And uh, this is a difficult area for them. It's a, it's a, a, um, a Kurdish-dominated area, and the, the YPG has been a very, very effective militia. So um, I'm not making any predictions, but I think that the the fear that Azza expressed at the end that, uh, that there might end up being a lot of civilian casualties and that op- this operation might be a very difficult one is worth paying attention to. It's not simply the case that Turkey is going to roll over the Kurds here. And what would the implications of that be, Asla? Is that something which is... Uh, it would be very, uh, you know, it would have different consequences if we're talking about Kurdish casualties or Turkish military casualties, but in Turkey in a sort of already very securitized uh, situation with a concentration of power, sort of, you know, very much of a national security state. Uh, God forbid Turkish casualties uh, would result in uh, renewed tensions, social tensions and sort of uh, perhaps strengthen Erdogan's hand domestically. But it would not be good in terms of cohabitation between Turks and Kurds within Turkey. There could be a radicalization of the PKK as well in response to it. Or radicalization of Turkish uh, citizens and sort of the sentiment on the streets, which is already uh, very tense and edgy. And uh, I worry about more intercommunal uh, tensions in Turkey. In terms of uh, Kurdish casualties, heavy Kurdish, that, that would be that would mean 
more international attention, of course. We've seen that in Kobani. We've seen how a, a, a small town that no one had heard of could actually uh, become a very much the center of uh, international news media attention. So uh, that ha often has that potential as well. So you could see it blow up in their faces in the way that some of the Israeli um, campaigns have, have gone um, awry for, for Tel Aviv in international perceptions. Exactly. Yeah. Also, given that this is a densely populated city. Um, so should we end by talking about the, the kind of geopolitics of Syria? I don't know who wants to take a crack at that, but we've basically got to a situation where um, the main players have been changing their attitudes quite a lot as a result of the success of, of Russia's incursions there. And, um, you know, we've had several podcasts where we talked about whether there's prospect now for, for, for peace on Russian terms. Um, I don't know who wants to, to, uh, to look at that. I'll take a quick crack. I mean, I would first of all uh, dispute the idea that, Russian, that Russia has been successful in Syria. I know that's not a, a popular position, but I think, in fact, Russia is struggling, as so many countries do in these types of interventions, with an endgame, which Kadri described. And I don't think they've found one yet. I don't think they're likely to find one. They just lost several planes just a, a week or so ago on the ground to mortar fire, and no one can explain even where the mortar fire came from. And I think that's a sort of typical problem. They announced that they, were, that they had been successful and they were withdrawing. That was roughly the third or fourth time that they had done that, uh, and then, of course, didn't withdraw. Uh, in any major way. Um, and I think that that shows that actually they don't really have a grip on the end game, that, um, that Assad, uh, even if he is their ally, has a different perspective on the end game, isn't actually interested in the peace deal that Qadri uh, described. Uh, I think it, the, the other element of this, which is really coming to the fore, is the U.S. decision, and it was a decision which was just made in the past few weeks, to use eastern Syria as a theater uh, with which to beat up the Iranians. That is essentially the speech that, um, that Tillerson made. Uh, there is a lot of support in Washington uh, for uh, an anti-Iranian front uh, and for using the American presence in eastern Syria to, uh, to fight the Iranians. Um, and the uh, th this, to me, this, the geopolitics of this operation has to be seen within that context. It confronts the U.S. Uh, because their, their ally in that anti-Iranian fight has been attacked by, by um, the Turks. They have to either put up or shut up. That means that they have to either renege on a policy that they just established a few weeks ago and decide that eastern Syria isn't worth supporting, or they have to double down in their support for the forces that they, uh, that they have built up in eastern Syria and decide that they're going to struggle against the Iranians and, I guess, the Russians in eastern Syria. That's, I don't really know where Washington is going to go on that. It, to do it, they would have to put a lot more resources in. But, of course, they do have the resources to put in. Uh, and they do believe that the Iranian struggle is the central one in the Middle East. So I think that, that to me, that portends that uh, a lot of danger, particularly in Syria, an increase in a, a change, but also an increase in the proxy war dynamics in Syria, and it pretends that the Syrian civil war in, in yet another sort of protean form is going to continue for quite a bit longer. 
Yes, to add to it, I think very sort of general difficulty for, for Russia because up until now it has largely um, functioned as a sort of disruptive power uh, acting against the liberal international order that it finds to be against its interests and generally not workable. But now, you know, liberal order is weakened enough, so Russia could create peace in its terms, and, and, but that would require it to become constructive power, and that's a lot, a lot harder. It's, it's so much easier to be dis disruptive, but when you try to be constructive, you run into all these difficulties, and Syria in particular, of course, involves many stubborn players. Uh, now for peace talks, opposition uh, refuses to come because they say they have been given impossible preconditions, namely no mention of any transition from Assad rule. Um, and Assad in its turn is, is, is also stubborn. And then there is the problem of the West because Moscow really wants the West to play a part in reconstruction of Syria uh, because the West has money and, and capability for that. But I'm not sure the West has really thought about the terms, but I, I do think that actually for Europe, definitely some sort of political transition in some remote future could be considered as a precondition, because why should we support Assad unconditionally? Okay, we have sort of reversed on our demands that he go tomorrow, but, but even so. So it is, it is definitely complicated. How do you see things, Asla? Well, um, the end game is the political settlement is not there, but I think ideas are already there. And I do disagree with Jeremy on two issues. I think the Russians are doing okay in terms of uh, their own goals and uh, this offering business, even this offering business is going to play a role in forcing Turks to acquiesce, to accept a uh, regime controlling Idlib, perhaps, rolling over Idlib, and forcing Kurds in the end to accept a deal with the regime. Uh, that was kind of, one, that was sort of one of the things Jeremy did predict, though, the, the bad news for the Kurds of the, uh, at the end of wars. But I do think it would be difficult for Americans to walk, walk away from the Kurds, to abandon them, to drop them. Not only for reasons to do with Iran, but because the balances uh, would change so much so fast in northern Syria that they can't avoid, they, that they can't uh, allow that to happen. I think that Tillerson's speech is a very clear indication that there will be there. They'll have to continue. They will continue supporting YPG for now, at the risk of further uh, introducing tensions into the relationship with Turkey. Okay, well, um, a lot of confusion about both where Syria is going to go, where Turkey is going to go, where <laughs> NATO is going to go, where Russia is going to go. That's us adding confusion to the world in 30 minutes. <laughs> um, but I, and I think that's about as much confusion as we have time for in this particular episode. But we can come back for more. Um, in fact, we will next week. Um, it's been great talking to you. It's really, really interesting. And it's clear that uh, the events in this small place, which many Americans confuse with nasal spray, are going to have quite a lot of significance on the world stage. And we will come back to it uh, again uh, as the situation evolves. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, 
Kadri, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I brought it along, fantastic. I have a book that I actually cannot recommend to the bulk of our audience because it is available only in Estonian and, uh, and probably also important right, only to Estonians. <laughs> but um, it's titled In the Beginning Was Johan and it's a collection of memories about my late professor at the Department of Journalism of Tartu University. Uh, Johan, Johan Begel, his former students are, are, are talking about him and why I'm reading it right now, that might be more interesting. I'm going to give a lecture to Russian journalists at Oxford and I sort of felt that myself, I don't really have a moral right to try to tell them how they need to do their job in the conditions that are so much more complicated than in any of our countries. But my former professor, he had been through all Soviet crap and, and he had that right. So I decided to look what he has been telling to us. In my own memory, I have one thing. In the autumn of 1988, that was my first year at the university and one of his last years, he didn't teach it much longer. It was his last lecture to us when he said that, you know, if it happens that someone comes to you and asks you to write something that you disagree with. Do not do that. And it has stuck with me because, you know, he has gone through it. He knows what can be gained through compromises like that. Because, you know, sometimes you could save a student from being expelled. Sometimes you could save, I don't know, your department even. These are important things. It's not like, you know, you, you, you compromise because you are weak. Uh, but even so, his balance was that, do not do it. And myself, I have, of course, diffic had difficulties following the advice because no one I ever came. <laughs> no one ever came and asked me to write something I disagree with. <laughs> Maybe my editors, but that's a different story. I think I asked you that last week, but your answer was no, so. <laughs> 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 yes, exactly. I was thinking that. So you might have to learn Estonian before you can join Kadri on this journey, but we will post a link to that on the website. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, well, for me, you know, I find that reading is very 2015, um, and I'm more, um, I'm more into podcasts uh, these days. That allows me to um, uh, bike through London while I'm listening and, and gives me the opportunity of um, possibly getting killed. Um, 